You are listening to Three Moves Ahead, the official podcast of FlashToSteel.com. I am your host, Troy Goodfellow, and this is episode number 99. This is the Gretzky Show. With me today is one of my regular panelists. Uh, we have Dr. Bruce Garrick. Yeah, hello gamers! So, is that Scottish? I, I don't know what it is. It's, it's something that's, that's uniquely about gaming. No, Gaming it's weird. not. Oh. <laughs> it's uniquely about dorkitude. <laughs> well, that goes hand in hand with gaming, so we're all set. <laughs> this is true. Uh, spilling uh, Rob Zachney's seat. He was supposed to be here tonight, but coming in at the last minute and pinch hitting. If you've been uh, on the internet since the beginning of the century, you know him as Lum the Mad. I know him from MCSoft and his amazing MMO blog at brokentoys.org. And a man who knows his Soviet history inside and out, uh, Mr. Scott Jennings. Everyone needs hobbies. <laughs> Thank you for joining us, Scott, on such really short notice. No problem. I mean, it's nice to talk about something that isn't an MMO, so there you go. And if uh, if the Matrix guys tell me they're making an MMO out of War in the East, I'm going to throw a fit. <laughs> <laughs> We have, uh, especially War in the East, because that is what tonight's show is about. War in the East is one of uh, the most anticipated war games and biggest war games, both in size, breadth, and prominence, and price, uh, in uh, recent years. So we have with us, uh, from 2x3 Games, the president of 2x3 Games, Mr. Joel Billings. Joel? Hello. Yeah, thanks for having me. And from Matrix Games, uh, the publisher of War in the East, we have the Director of Product Development, Eric Rutens. Hi, everybody. Uh, so, Eric and Joel, glad you could be here. Uh, War in the East is... I'm not even sure where to even begin with War in the East. It is uh, large, it is broad, it is complicated, it has separate manuals for the tutorial and the game itself. Um, so, why don't we begin with... Uh, first... For a war game designer, um, I'm going to start with just the obvious question. What is the strategic problem you're trying to present in War in the East? Hmm. Uh, well, I guess it would be for the, uh, the the main one is for the German player. Uh, what to do? Obviously, uh, the biggest land campaign in history uh, didn't go so well for the Germans. So here's the chance for the players to figure out you know, if they could do better. And, you know, that's really where it starts out. And it's and we try to give people a lot of choices, a lot of options. And I think that's that's what's there. So people can test out various strategies. You know, should should Guderian have gone south? Should he have just gone to Moscow? Should the Germans in 42 have gone to the Caucasus or tried to take Moscow again? Those are the kinds of uh, questions that come up. So it was designed with the German player in mind primarily, you would say? Well, they're the, they've got the initiative at the beginning, so clearly they, they set the pace. Now, you can play other scenarios, you can play shorter scenarios, you can play campaigns and start in 42, 43, 44, when the, later on where the Russians have the initiative. And so you can, you can deal with those kinds of questions as well. You know, how, how could the Russians have done better later on? But I'd say, you know, probably, uh, this is just a guess, 70% of the players will start with the German player being interested in the Blitzkrieg and, and trying to see if they can do better. And, and so that, that's really, you know, the, the, the first thing that you have to get right. Uh, but clearly it's, it's a two-player game, and, and uh, uh, the game works against the computer and it works against other players, so you've got to have the Soviet perspective as well. And there's plenty of plenty of uh, decisions for the Soviet player as well, uh, including how to how to structure their forces over time, how to change their units, and and go from an army of basically masses of riflemen uh, to you know the the army they had at the end, which was really the match of the German army from the early war with all its mobility and and mech corps and everything. So it's it's got everything. <laughs> So I have a question about the sort of the design philosophy. So it's got everything because you wanted to simulate everything. I mean, what, when you sat down and decided to to make the game, is that what you were really thinking? Well, we wanted 
a couple of things. We wanted a, a serious war game that the, the, the hardcore war gamers, the grognars, would really like. Uh, like what we did with War in the Pacific in terms of having just a lot of detail and historical realism built into it. Uh, but at the same time, we, we wanted to have an I-go-you-go game system that had the sort of addictive, you know, I want to move my next piece quality that Panzer General had. And this this isn't the first game that Gary's done on the whole War in the East. This is the, I think, fourth game now that he's done at, over the last, what, 30 years. But it's the first game that has an I-go-you-go system. And that was really uh, a change in philosophy. Because we, we thought that, uh, especially the early Blitzkrieg encirclements, the sweeping motions and so on, that players would really enjoy an, that kind of a system where the, they got to move the pieces and basically attack, keep moving, attack, break through, keep moving, and, and just want to keep going. And, and the reaction we've gotten, I think we made the right choice. But it feels different than his other War in the East games. Of course, it's more massive. We did go to the 10-mile scale, which is, you know, each, each time we went back to war in Russia, we have the scale. So I think we started at 40 miles, 20 miles, 10 miles. So it's not just the... the We've got the change in the system, but the, the the size. So we also wanted to appeal to the monster game board gamers from the 70s. I mean, I loved the original uh, SPI War in the East game, uh, the Games Workshop, uh, what was it, uh, Drangnok Osten and their Europa series. Those monster board games that were just huge. They filled the, the you know the ping pong table and uh, just gave you this massive scope. So. Yeah, that's one thing. Yeah, sorry to interrupt. I just yeah. wanted to talk, throw in there. That's one thing. Uh, coming from a coming from a uh, antediluvian almost uh, board war gaming background, I mean, that's one thing that really hit me the most about War in the East was it plays, you know, at its most basic level, very much like a board war game, much more so than a lot of you know uh, computer war games we've seen to date. In that, you know, it's at its basic level, it's very easy to grok. You have counters with you know attack and attack and movement scores, and you push them around the board until something happens. Uh, I guess really. What my um, first impression was is that once you drill down into that to things like the production system and uh, things of like that, you know, the replacement system, it's all very, very detailed, very – I mean, the game just kind of throws a blizzard of complexity at you once you scratch that initial layer. And uh, I just have to ask, uh, is there going to be any thought towards, you know, the next – title in the series because i presume you know with this much investment and and uh, you know obviously you can't comment specifically right now but theoretically obviously with this much investment in a system you've got to be coming out with more in the series is there going to be more thoughts towards streamlining those aspects to meet that first impression well there, there's definitely uh, plans to do more in the series and the, the next game in the series actually that we're thinking about is the war in the west but mm -hmm. uh, War in the West, that's you know from 1943 to 45. Then we hope to add in North Africa. Then we hope to ultimately get to a War in Europe game that adds everything in. By the time we get to War in Europe, we have to deal with more complicated naval rules. We have to right. deal with a lot of political stuff that happened mm -hmm. before the uh, 1941. Sure. So th there's a lot of extra layer of work that will go into that. So we're going to start slow by going to 43 to 45 where we don't have the political issues or the naval issues. So what you're telling to, me is you're going to make it more complex. Well, ultimately, <laughs> in order to deal with all of World War II in Europe, it's got to have things in sure. it that we didn't have to do for War in the East. Now, as far as making it, I, I, I like the way you described it, that you know, that it's, it's easy to, to, to get in and just move the pieces around. That, that was the goal. You know, you get in, you, you move pieces, you attack, you move, you, you play it like Panzer General, and you can play it. You're, you're going to not do, you know, amazingly well, but, uh, and we're getting good feedback on the, AI, on the AI so far, and that's good. But you can play it, and you can enjoy it. But then what you want to do is learn more about it, and, and there's a lot to learn. But you don't have to learn any, you know, there's nothing you have to learn immediately. So you just sort of pick things as you go along and you decide okay i want to learn about leaders you know what, what do i need to know about leaders okay now I, what do i need to know about supply 
and and you and you go in and and uh, you read some of the sections. You, you go on the forum. You find out more information. You don't have to know all that stuff. You don't have. To, I don't even when I play it. I don't play it at the at the level of detail that some of the guys play it at. Some mm-hmm. of our testers have. You know, I don't move every support unit. I use the automated support movement system. I don't do a lot with my air units. I let the AI do a lot of the air units. Now we can't. There's some things we can't do. We can't have the AI take over huge chunks of of the ground units. We don't think that sure. would be a good thing to do. Uh, as far as as I don't know, say, you know, simplifying or streamlining. I mean, I think we're going to continue. We're going to continue to work on War in the East and patch it through time. I'm sure we'll continue to develop uh, systems and refine and add features as we go. That's the nice thing about you know doing follow-on games with the same system, where you like the fundamental system and you're just trying to make it better. So we'll, we'll hopefully do some of that. And but and by the time War in the West, uh, War in Europe comes around, uh, you know, I'm sure it'll be even better. So I mean, you, I'm. You talked about you know the the monster war games of the seventies and they were huge and let's be honest nobody ever finished any of those. Uh, they played them for a bit and no one ever probably played a game of what was that North African one where you just handled the logistics campaign for, the, for North Africa campaign yeah. for North Africa. Yeah, I mean no no one no one ever played that. I finished a turn a of campaign game. for North well, Africa and that and that's the that's <laughs> that is game. the fundamental difference with a computer game over well, the board. This is this is this is what I'm this is what I'm I'm, I'm getting where the questions going. Um, even computer games people do have. Uh, the war game audience is, is the, the computer gaming audience is changing and the war game audience is changing um, is there a point well what point is a game too big and too complicated we haven't found it yet to be honest yeah I don't I don't know that we have I mean we have we have a good chunk of our audience screaming for more 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 control more detail bigger war in Europe you know the whole thing so there's always going to be some part of the customer base that is just wants more and more. How would but, you that, play? That, yeah. How would you play test a war in Europe at the ten kilometer scale? I mean, is, isn't that like just well, almost you, unplayable you, in terms of length of time? <laughs> yeah, it, it, it takes a lot of time, and a lot of our work on war in the Pacific and war in the East is AI versus AI testing, and so you have to get the AI to at least a reasonable level so you can simulate. You know, a, a decent amount of what's supposed to be going on, and then you you let the the AI test. And uh, if it wasn't for that, you know, we we wouldn't be able to test a lot of things. Now, at the same time, you have to realize with War in the East, I think we really have a game that that with a system that's fun to play. The smaller scenarios, I, I don't think mm-hmm. a lot of people play War in the Pacific smaller scenarios. They just want to play the big campaign with War in the East. If you go up, uh, if you look at the server right now where people are playing multiplayer, I'd say you know eighty percent of the games are not the campaign game. Well, how they're, much is multiplayer versus single player though? I mean, no one's going to want to play a multiplayer campaign game of War and East because that's an incredible time commitment unless they're living together or something. Well, people people are doing it and they're yeah. posting AARs and taking all the time uh, to write about yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, we've 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 had actually a lot of activity also in games like. You know, War in the Pacific, where we've had multi-year, multiplayer, play-by-email games going on, player against yeah. player. It's actually good I mean, completion. It, it, yeah, it probably took four years for the first person to finish a War in the Pacific, you know, play-by-email game. But <laughs> well, I mean, that's not. I, 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 I don't. I don't have any problem believing that because when I was uh, uh, when I was younger, I was in a. Well, I still am in the same thing, but I, I don't play uh, take advantage of it anymore. I used to be in a play-by-mail club. In which we regularly played. I mean, I play. I think I played a couple games of Third Reich that that lasted two or three years, and that's just people sending you know postal mail back and forth yeah. with turns. I used to do that in the seventies. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I, yeah, same with me, seventies, early eighties. But <laughs> um, uh, you know, so I, I have no, I have no problem or, or imagining people playing games for years and having them go on and it, and, uh, and enjoying them and, and, and playing the completion that's not a, that's that's I'm not surprised War in the East is actually better than War in the Pacific in terms of the completability because it's weekly turns instead of one or two day turns in War in the Pacific so you've only got about 200 turns and believe it or not we've got people who are running about a turn a day 
maybe they, it takes two days because you know one day per person. So you're looking at a game that actually can, can be completed in a half year to a year, uh, and I, I just don't think War in the Pacific, you know, you could do that. So I think it's it's doable, but at the same time we've got. You know, the, the Case Blue scenario, which is the, the Caucasus, it's a 24-turn scenario. Somebody finished that in, in a week or two already. Uh, and, and yet you've got, that's these, you know, are not tiny scenarios. Those are fairly major scenarios in and of themselves. One of the things that astonished me about this game is, well, many of the war games that come out of 2 by 3 uh, is the scale of the research and the depth of the research. Um it's it's very impressive at that level. Uh, could you talk a bit about how you design a game that is first you know accurate, but also fun to play? Because when you play a lot of strategy and war games, often the most accurate game is not always the most fun game. Often you need to fudge a bit here and there, either to keep you know the losing side interesting or to keep the rules a bit off so that both sides have at least a challenge. Um, so what are the challenges in researching and presenting the war, the Operation Barbarossa, making it both challenging, interesting, and historically accurate? And how do you get that research done properly? Uh, let's see. Well, there's sort of a, you asked about how things get designed initially. There's sort of a two-front war that goes on at the beginning. One is the database, which, you know, Gary is really, he and the people that he's worked with, uh, creating databases over the years they they sit down and they they figure out what they need in the database and that's a huge design effort in and of itself and then he has a uh, somebody go off usually and, and create the, the basic database and we pull from you know all the games that, we, that he's worked on in the past so you'll see bits of steel panthers database in in our in the database you'll see parts from bombing the reich in there so a lot of the data is is from earlier times then the second front in the war is sort of creating the interface part uh, you know how the game's going to look and feel and that's sort of a, a separate issue and that goes on at the same time but uh as far as the data uh it's a i mean it's a constant refining and and checking and double checking i mean as, as we went through the development process you have to realize war in the east started in the year 2000 it was when two by three games started it was the first project I worked on was working on the map, laying out the map for East. But we kept having other games sort of interrupt us in the way. And we kept, you know, doing a little bit and then putting it on the shelf and doing a little bit. We always knew we would get back to it. We didn't get back to it seriously until 2008 after War Between the States came out. So uh, at that point, we had, you know, a new flock of testers and data people who were looking at the data. And uh, we were constantly getting input from people and, and you know, changing the data. So th th that's just always getting massaged all through the process up until the very end. And it will continue to, to change as we go on to these other games and flush out the full Europe database. Uh, but the basic design of the database is done very early you know, in terms of what needs to be in there. And then, you know, you can have endless arguments, as we see on, on the Internet, about various pieces of equipment and how, how uh, things should be done, uh, you know, what the data should be. And there's a lot of disagreements out there, and luckily we've had a good group of people that, that you know, collaborate and can come to some kind of consensus on what needs to go in there. Well, I, I don't want to have an argument about that. I want to have an argument about the game sort of philosophy itself, um, because uh, I'm really I'm really interested in, in the way that sort of computer games. Uh, have. Um, so, the, the thing that I really that I'm really curious about, I, I have a, uh, I've just been observing sort of computer games uh, on the internet. I I I, um, I I I had this problem with with. Uh, with sort of hex hex based type games right from the beginning because the fact that the computer is sort of taking care of everything allows the game to sort of move from being a game to being sort of a uh, I don't know what to call it sort of a, a computer system that that players don't really play they just sort of interact with and that's kind of the way that that uh, 
I experienced War in the East when I played it. And one of the things that struck me was when I started reading the manual, there's nothing in the manual that really tells me exactly how the game works in the sense that I can go and play the game. I, it tells me how to how to move pieces around. It tells me what to click on, but it doesn't tell me exactly what's going on in the game. In the sen- in the same sense that a that a, a board game rule book tells me, if I line these guys up and attack this other guy, I have you know a twenty five percent chance of this happening, a sixteen percent chance of this happening, et cetera, et cetera. So I can't really work through the system and uh, and sort of see what's going on. I have to, it's, it's sort of an empirical process where I have to play the game and then see what happens and then kind of figure out how things work and then play it again. And then, Oh, you know, this is how far I'll probably be able to move a panzer division. And this is how, you know, this is the, the, uh, amount of, uh, attack factors I'm going to need to probably knock off, you know, this rifle division. Um, so, it was one of the things that was that struck me when I was reading the manual. The manual really sort of was a very descriptive manual, but not descriptive of the underlying game processes themselves. Was that deliberate, and why? I, you know, as far as the underlying game processes, you know, there's thousands of lines of code that that make things happen. So exactly, it, it's much more complicated than a board game. You're absolutely right. I mean, War in the East probably had a 32-page manual. You know, for that monster game, the board game originally, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, which is nothing compared to what goes into making this computer game work. So we can't possibly describe the underlying factors. There are there are some formulas. I, we we started out wanting, thinking we would put formulas in so people could understand some, and then we realized that some of them were just so complicated they were pretty much impossible to describe uh, without a, a ton of work. Uh, and even then, it would be you know only a, f- a small percentage of people would want to do that. So what, there, the there was also that? what's that? Well, if I'm playing a game with a bunch of formulas that I don't even know exist, what's the difference between that and just ha- and just you know simplifying all those formulas to being like you know factor seven versus factor five? Well, because basically, just like the combat in War in the East, uh, unlike. A, game, a board game where you just have factor five against factor four, you know, it's a one-to-one attack. You've got every squad in there with realistic numbers and data on how, how they'll fight and interact. So you get, you ultimately get a much more realistic, you know, okay, you know, rock, scissors, paper of, okay, if I'm attacking in a woods with a panzer division, I'm not going to do as well. But is it realistic infantry. or is it just detailed? Yeah, I'd well, argue it, that as well. I mean, well. I'm so, let, let me go ahead and throw in here, uh, get in a word edgewise, that I think uh, Bruce and I are both very passionate about the subject, obviously. And I would argue that I'm not sure that realism is the right word that we want to go through here. I mean, you know, these these are not military simulations per se. They are military games. And we are, you know, the state of the art in War and East is definitely an example of the state of the art in this. But it is still, at its heart, a game. It's not a simulation. And we may be adding a lot of real, you know, a lot of uh, detailed factors in a, uh, in a, uh, sorry, uh, just got distracted. That in a, uh, we may have a lot of detailed factors that go into, you know, uh, resolving a combat. But how is that more realistic from throwing up a combat results table and saying you have a 5% chance that this will happen, you have a 5% chance that this will happen, you have a 50% chance that this will happen? And, uh, Troy, it looks like Eric wants to actually throw in on this question as well. Yep. Go ahead, Eric. Eric? Okay. How, how bad is that? Oh, just keep going. Okay. Um well, I really wanted to give Joel a chance to answer as well. I just wanted to chime yeah, yeah. in on that. Uh, you can edit it however you want. But um, no, one ahead. of the ways I look at it is sort of an infinite, a combat resolution table with infinite resolution. When you have a limited resolution to your combat results table, however you want to put it, you're going to have corner cases that come up where the interaction of units over this you know, vast possible combination of conflicts on the Eastern Front, you're eventually going to end up with something that doesn't really end up realistically. When you start from the lowest level and you're looking at it from the lowest level and you've got rules in place from the squad level and the vehicle level on up incorporating everything, all the soft factors as well as all the leadership and command and control factors, all the logistical factors, then you're going to end up with a much, much smaller 
group of corner cases where you're, you've got something that the system can't handle based on one of the rules it's got, where it's, it's going to throw out a result that doesn't make sense to the wargamer at the end. And yeah, I'll, uh, I mean, we're basically I'll mute again. Yeah, we're okay. we're basically taking advantage of the computer to give a, a much uh, more accurate portrayal of the interactions of the different weapons and and terrain and all of those factors that you just wouldn't get in a board game because you wouldn't have these factors. You you couldn't make a table, uh, a combat results table, you know, that you could deal with that would that take all of this in. You can't do it as a board game. You can do it as a computer game. Now, the downside is you get what you're talking about, whereas you it's it's a more a sense of feel than a, you know, a, a calculator that can tell you you've got a 52% chance of winning this battle and retreating the enemy. It, it, you can't get that, so you have to get a better feel. At the same time, Gary made a, a definite a call, a design call on this game that that some people, you know, take exception with and and that is that he wanted a lot out of random combat results because war is very random and you get you know, midway, if you play the midway out, you know, 10 times, you'll get the historical result probably never, maybe once, you know, one in a hundred. So, you know, war is made up with a lot of randomness. And so that's what's in the game. So you're going to have those odd cases where a, uh, you know, a unit that you just shouldn't hold out does because there's randomness built in. But you get a feel for the game. And that's part of the uh, fun, I think, of of learning the game is is you get a feel for what's going to work and what's not. But the interest, but it's not chess. This is not chess where you know the move is going to give you a certain result. Every time you face that, that turn and you want to make that breakthrough and encirclement, you don't know exactly as the turn develops whether you're going to close the pocket or not. And it's the, that's the fun part of this I go, you go system that well, is is it fun though if the user doesn't really have a handle on what you know what uh, goes into making uh, making a combat successful or not? And I think we give you know we give you generalities. We tell you roughly what you know how the terrain is going to affect things. We tell you how the fort levels are going to affect things. What things are better where and and basically. You, you, so you have a sense. If you're doing things you know, that make sense hist- historically, then more often than not, you'll do better. But in that particular attack, no, you won't, you won't necessarily know for sure you know, how it's going to come out. Well, I mean, you don't know for sure in a board game either, right? I mean, you have some, and, and I'd argue that that also in any attack, in in there has to be some probability of a, of attack succeeding in in war in the east too. I mean, there there is an absolute probability if you if you use whatever formula it's using, uh, you know, there you have there has to be distilled down to a probability. I mean, it happens or it doesn't happen. So, so it, it's just the same as in a board game where you know. Uh, something has a pro- you know it may have a sixteen percent probability one out of six or it may have you know a five out of six probability of happening you just have a uh, you know if you have a six sided die but I mean I think it all I mean, and I'm not trying to I'm not I'm not necessarily criticizing the game I mean I understand exactly why people like this kind of thing and and I I do like it to some extent the, the my biggest problem is I simply no longer have you know enough free time to be able to, I would love to be able to try to sit down. And play through, you know, an entire game and 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 multiple times, uh, and uh, kind of really get a handle on how things work and 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 optimize my strategy and and uh, and really, you know, get that that um, the sort of satisfaction that goes from, uh, you know, just kind of flailing around and getting all your Panzer divisions destroyed to, you know, actually making meaningful breakthroughs and and uh, you know, bettering the historical result. Uh, depending which side I'm playing, but uh, and I've I've been playing the game myself, and I am definitely still at the flailing around level. I mean, I have been try I have been trying, you know, playing. I've been playing the game literally with a PDF manual on my laptop screen, going through it. How do I do this? How do I do this? <laughs> and it's it's and I have been playing games and war games for the past thirty years. Mm-hmm. I am not a novice at this stuff, and it is still. It's not impenetrable. It's just there is so much detail there. That it's like going to, you know, I I feel like I'm going to staff college in the military. I really do. I mean, it's just in the, there is so much detail that past the basic level of pushing counters on the board. Once you get past that, it just there is this wall of difficulty. It just slams your face. Have you started out with uh, the smaller scenarios or? I did. I played through the tutorial and. Uh, 
And then I uh, jumped in on the Case Blue scenario, and now I'm going through the Barbarossa scenario as a Soviet player, which is an exercise in, okay, which of my units survived long enough for me to move this time? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah, those are pretty big scenarios. I mean, yeah. I, I would suggest for anybody that after the tutorial, they move to one of the Road 2 scenarios, because then you get a, a piece of the front, and you learn, like, Road to Kiev or Road to... I did the road to Leningrad multiple times. Okay, that, that all right. Was, that was that was really I thought helpful too, and I, I like those. I mean, those are you, the, you you sort of have exactly like you said a piece of the front. You have a defined objective, and you sort of get. To, I mean, it reminds me something. There was a game. Uh, there was a game uh, in the seventies or eighties that I played by SPI called Leningrad, and it was just a bunch of you know it was Army Group North, and you just had to capture Leningrad, and. Uh, so you have a defined objective, and you sort of play through it multiple times and see how well you can do each time. Um, right. I mean, I, I really, I, I get it. I understand why people want so much detail because the, you know it sort of gives them, um, uh, you know, there's the immersion factor. People, it's it's played more like, a, you know, almost like a, I don't want to use the word MMO because that's not what I mean, but it's it's a, it's a world that you sort of immerse yourself in. Uh, Touching touch, history is yes, your exactly is yes. your phrase. My for touching it. history, yes, I, I definitely have that phrase, and uh, I I, uh, I, I, I I see how that yeah. Well, thank you. I I, I think that um, people can sort of find whatever they're interested in about the campaign. They can find that in the game, right? I mean, the you know, um, Velkiluki or some uh, you know the every every little uh, little battle pocket whatever breakthrough you can tell a story about because it's going to be there because the scale supports it uh you can have you can you know you read about some interesting uh piece of equipment it's in the game uh so i i totally get that whole thing the thing that that kind of gets me is that i i remember playing uh now we're talking about um you know War in the East type games. One of my favorite games was the Russian campaign. And that game was a, was a game. I mean, it was clearly a game. And the whole point almost of that game was that people tried to set up, almost like in chess, um, you know, different uh, uh, defenses that that would be, you know, impenetrable to the to the to the German player over the two impulses that the game had. You know, hit a first impulse and a second impulse. And the first impulse, you sort of overran things so that in the second impulse, you could pour things through your through the hole. And uh, there were multiple, uh, I remember when the when the general was was being published, you know, multiple articles people would write in, uh, well, this is, you know, this is my perfect defense. And then somebody would write in write another article, you know, you know, crushing the so-and-so defense. Oh, there's from, tons you know, of those articles yeah. online today. If you go on the, you know, like, Reb Grognards and sites like that, I mean, they're still up there, you know, the, you know, li lists of articles of, you know, the perfect, you know, three-turn defense or whatever. Right. I think a lot of people were interested in that just because it was such an elegant design in communicating, you know, uh, the interplay between the German and Soviet styles of warfare, and it taught it in a very accessible manner. It's, you know, the Germans outmaneuvered the Soviets. The Soviets tried to use their more limited maneuverability in a way that they could, you know, trade land for time. And it was very easy for people to understand in Grok. Probably not as realistic as war games that we see today, but at the same time, you had that history lesson that people were learning. Well, tell me about the checkerboard defense. <laughs> the right now, defense. <laughs> yeah. In uh, uh, as it's as uh, I think Andy, our, our test manager, came up with. Uh -huh. uh, it, it's basically it, it seems to be a Soviet strategy of of spreading out a, a sort of skirmishers out in front mm -hmm. of the main line of resistance. Maybe uh, you know alternating third hexes, maybe three mm -hmm. three hex rows deep. And the idea is it blocks the. Uh, the, the Germans from, you know, gaining a lot of territory all at one time or, more importantly, you know, surrounding a large set of units. So if you just draw a line and you make a, a you know, one line, mm -hmm. you're just you're just going to be encircled, you know. Yeah, and re in, in real, yeah, in it's real really life. A historical uh, strategy. Yeah, Go in ahead. real life, Stalin had the author of that strategy shot. Yeah, no that doubt. Was no doubt. Yeah, no, seriously, that was uh, Tukhachevsky's uh, defense and death doctrine. And if the Soviets had used it in 41, it might have probably wouldn't have gone that differently, but it would have been a little easier on them, probably. Sure. But I mean, I guess, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I mean, there's lots of strategies that could have been used on both sides. Uh, and we, we 
don't keep you from doing those things. But there's no, I, I would say that at this point, nobody has come up with a perfect strategy that can be, you know, that that's going to win just by a strategy. It's not as simple as a chess game, and it's not as simple as the, you know, board games of the '70s that you're talking about, where you could come up with the perfect, you know, move or the perfect uh, strategy for. But you couldn't necessarily, that, but that's that, I guess, and that's part of the argument that I'm making is that just because it's more complex doesn't mean that you know that it necessarily has more depth because you can have a game with very simple factors that there is no that there actually is no perfect solution to either there are multiple you know reasonable solutions but there's no perfect solution um and i think that in the same way something with with a ton of detail doesn't necessarily i mean there there could simply be a a way to to solve that problem too and my one of my points about the checkerboard defense is the checkerboard defense is incredibly unrealistic yet it seems to work pretty well so that kind of argues against the idea that the system is somehow making just putting in all these details to make the system realistic somehow. It's actually interacting well, in ways that makes know, it I'm less not realistic. I'm not sure how you say it's unrealistic because really these things, you know, these units are all you're doing is is running a thin front. You're basically manning, you know, as the idea of skirmishers. You're, these units control areas, you know, a couple of hexes to the side with their zone of control. So you're putting out a screen. You're basically giving up a lot of space for time and and units and there I, I don't think it's unrealistic necessarily that perhaps they didn't use it you know at that point uh i think they did use it maybe a little bit more in 42 and the in the in the caucuses for a while but you know temporarily but i i, I think also let's face it the game is it's a game it's it's a board game it's uh with hexes it's there are abstract elements to the game. I mean, the whole idea of zones of control is mm-hmm. still an abstraction. Right. So there's, given that there are these abstractions, there's also going to be techniques and strategies that play off the abstractions. But I think they still fundamentally, you know, deserve to be there and, and are okay. Um, I, I don't I, see. Go ahead. Finish up. I, I just uh, don't. I, don't see it as a gamey as gamey strategy that somehow breaks the game because I don't every... that's that's not what I'm saying. What I'm yeah. saying is that the 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 idea the systems that you're putting in the game are all assumptions, and I think the best test of a game is is not whether you know there's a linearity of results. It's just whether the game produces what people feel would be you know historical possibilities i mean if if you have a game and every every time the germans capture ostrakhan then obviously it's probably not a really good historical game actually might be a lot of fun though um but uh so so i just i just feel like the like the interplay of elements you know they're they're all they're they're many of them are unprovable assumptions so you know abstraction as far as i'm concerned is great and i'm not criticizing the game for having abstraction all games have to have abstraction because you know ultimately having a little box with an x through it that represents you know a division of guys is a crazy abstraction it's almost insane but i mean it's really good for the purposes of you know playing the game it's fun uh i want to bring eric i want to bring eric in here eric turn on your mic again yes i'm back Hi. I was just uh, well, waiting to chime in, so go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I want to get this from Matrix's perspective. You're publishing this game, and Matrix just publishes a lot of war games. Um, the target audience, who is when Matrix, you know, green lights, you know, this huge. I mean, Drigsby, you're going to be getting big games, and you know that. Uh, I just want to get an idea of how Matrix promotes this. And this is not a game that will open itself up to a whole lot of new war gamers. Uh, this is not a game that Matrix will sell to make Matrix's audience of uh, much larger than it already is. Um, what is what are, what are the trade-offs from Matrix's perspective in first promoting a game that is as deep and impressive uh, as this is uh, versus you know your whole business operation, which is you know we got to keep making games people are going to buy. Right. So let me comment on. Uh that and then pop back. I want yep. to say something on, on Bruce's comment too, on Bruce's idea yep. about the abstraction. Why don't you start with so, Bruce's comment and then come back? Okay, fair enough. Um, so first off, I mean, I think it's a fair point to say: does detail equal realism? Which is where where that that whole idea started. 
and can you make a simpler game that still offers the player you know, just as many choices. I will say that I, I agree with that in theory. In practice, having now played War in the East through the testing period and, and on up through and after release, I find that it presents me with more choices than the simpler games that I've played on the same topic, including Gary's previous efforts. I find that there's no, I haven't found, at least personally, the perfect offense or the perfect defense yet. The checkerboard is useful in some cases, not as useful in others, for example. Um, I've tried different priorities as far as where I direct my forces, both on offense when playing the Germans and, and how I structure my forces and where I emphasize as the Soviets. So far, to me, it's been an endless what-if laboratory of the Eastern Front that I feel like, you know, that alone to me has added to the realism because I've been able to explore more of the what-ifs that I've considered over the years in, in, in reading the accounts and studying the history than I've been able to in other games on the subject. So that's my two cents on that. Um, on the other point, so this is certainly a Grognard game. Um, we feel that while we do reach a lot of really hardcore war gamers at present, we haven't reached all of them that are out there yet. Um, we think that uh, there's been a lot of demand and a lot of um, anticipation for a long time among our existing audience and um, as it's grown over the years that, that anticipation buzz has increased about uh, revisiting some of the types of games that uh, you know came out in SSI's heyday and uh, that Gary has his name to. Um, we had a lot of success with War in the Pacific and with Uncommon Valor and War in the East looks to be on track to be even more successful than those. So a lot of what we're about is basically this sort of specialized uh, community. We're not just about you know, trying to make games that uh, will also appeal to a larger audience. We're also about making games that will really appeal to the specialized audience that, uh, that we feel that we, are, we do a really good job of catering to. Um, and that's where War in the East really hits the sweet spot. I mean, we're not under the illusion that War in the East is going to, you know, bring a whole new crop of, uh, of strategy gamers into hardcore wargaming. I mean, it might convert a few, but uh, for the most part, it's for, for people who already are into wargaming and, and really either want to take that next step or want to see the greatest, uh, you know, Russian front wargame to date, in our opinion. Um, and then we've got games like, uh, uh, for example, I mean, like Distant Worlds, which you've discussed, which is, which is mm -hmm. aimed at a more mainstream crowd. Um, do you want to say a little bit about the controversy over the price? There has been a lot of posts on forums about, you know, $80 for a war game. This is crazy. Uh, now yeah. people will, of course, pay, you know, $50 for a short RPG, but they say this is a hex-based war game. Yes, it's been, they don't understand it's been development since 2000, but they say, you know, this is first, this is $80. Right. Second, this is a very hardcore war game. And if it is, as you say, I'm going to play devil's advocate here. If it is, as you say, the best simulation, and the interface isn't terrible, uh, best simulation of Eastern Front wargaming, and there is a, still a lot of interest in World War II, mainstream interest in World War II, um, would it make more sense to both price it and market it towards a larger audience instead of just catering towards the people who've been waiting for it for 10 years? Um, is there? It's a, it's a niche product, so of course you want to hit your audience. We're going to buy it anyway, so you set at that premium price. Uh, but is there a special matrix position on you know why the eighty dollar price, which is more than people will pay for anything else on the PC this year? Right. Well, I know Joel also has an opinion on this, and I'm sure he'd like yeah. to share. But um, for my two cents, um, there is. I mean, it is a niche very much, and this when you make a game that although it has a lot of the you know road to scenarios and such that are great small games in and of themselves you know fundamentally for the full campaign you're dealing with a niche within a niche yeah. um, so you're going to get uh, a subset of war gamers who are already a subset of gamers who are really going to be into this so the pricing reflects that I mean it's fundamentally the fact that uh, economy of scale wise um, you, you can't compare this to uh, mainstream or, or mass market title anything that goes into the uh, So you're saying too, too, too few people are going to buy it anyway, so we make it so only fewer people will buy it? Yeah, it's I, in elastic demand. Yeah, basically, Supply and demand, I get that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's really what it is. We, we consider that in this niche, it's an inelastic demand curve, and right. we need to price the 
the game on the high side. I mean, we could have gone higher. Have you seen the board games that, that come out? Yeah, it was, was about, oh, yeah, ridiculous. Or, I mean, if we're done on the Volga, Objective Stalingrad, Dana Lombardi's making you know, these things are like 75 bucks. I mean, no, I, no, I, there are games that are out there 150, 200 yeah, off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I just, but I just, I think that the whole, is this, I, this whole price thing, it just drives me nuts. I mean, it, it, I'm with you. People are, I mean, it, it, it's it's treating like I mean it's it's treating the people who who sell the games. It's treating people at, at at Matrix like they're idiots. I mean, if if the if Matrix really thought that they could sell a lot more games by making the price thirty nine dollars, then they would price it at thirty nine dollars. But it, it's clearly not going to happen. So yeah, and you know, it's the, not and it's not a matter of yeah. selling more games. It's a matter of making more income, net income. Right, right, exactly. Think, right, 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 yeah. right. That, so that's, that's what yeah, we're that's talking about. Of course, we that's sell right. games right. at right. Games. Dollars, You're, you're right. I'm right. sorry, I misspoke. Yes, that's exactly that's right. the whole point. If you're gonna you're gonna maximize your income at the at the eighty nine dollar whatever price. They, my point is that Matrix has has um, has picked the price point that it makes economic sense for them. Right. And for people to say, oh, you know, this game shouldn't be priced. It shouldn't be. You know, shouldn't cost eighty nine dollars. It just it it's it's a nonsensical statement. Well, it's not nonsensical. If you if the game isn't worth eighty nine dollars to you, then don't buy it. I mean, that's how the market right. works. Oh, right, absolutely. Exactly. Yeah, I, but people are telling I, I, like telling. I, I, I think people I also, also price their games. It's just ludicrous. I understand. Yeah, I, I, sorry, go ahead, John. I, I was just going to say a couple of things. One, you know, the original war in Russia back about nineteen eighty three, eighty four was eighty dollars. Funny enough, when we <laughs> when I put out Computer Bismarck in in. Uh, but 1980, uh, I did studies. I mean, I came right, I was right out of college, you know, econ marketing degree. You know, I, I knew how to do uh, quantitative method stuff. And uh, I did surveys and tried to figure out what the price point was. And I remember, you know, thinking, oh, we were going to price it at $25 because, uh, you know, board games that back then were about $20. So I thought, okay, $25. And then when I did the studies of you know and, and of people and, and and questionnaires and so on, it became pretty clear that uh, it looked like I could make the same kind of profit at 25 or at 60, maybe. Uh, but of course, if you come out at 25, you can't come down. And when you come out at 60, right. you can come down if you you know right. made a mistake. But fundamentally, uh, you know, we had to go high, and and we came out at 60 dollars back then, and it it made sense and every study you've done and i haven't done that many studies but you know, like that like i did initially but indicates you know you it's an inelastic demand curve and you've got to price it high so that yeah the price thing yeah. is i think it's in it's a non-issue but um and, and i understand I'm, how this i should add i understand how this comes across if you're talking about someone who is you know not as um not as involved in the wargaming niche and looks at a game like this and tries to figure out how that makes sense given what you know mainstream PC game pricing looks like. And it's just that the underlying uh, the underlying market and the economics behind the market are absolutely night and day compared to what mainstream PC games look at. I mean, it's much more uh, it's a mu- it's a much different market. I mean, I just and, went and, out and I. NHL 11 for my PS3 and it costs 60 bucks and I, I don't see, hear anybody crying so whatever anyway. yeah and I agree that you know if it doesn't if it doesn't make sense for you don't buy it at that yeah. you know if you don't right but for the people who do buy it and do like it and do play it I mean they're, they're getting pennies per hour you know that that's what they're paying because this is the kind of game that once if you like it if you get into it if this is your kind of game you will spend hundreds and hundreds of hours playing and and so you will have ended up spending a few pennies per hour of, of gameplay. So I think that compares pretty favorably yeah. to most games on the market. Well, it's in pennies per hour for me just getting to the tutorial scenario. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, let's... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not that I measure a game's worth based on how long it takes me to figure it out. All right. Uh, the, the, the interesting we all agree question. about that, so let's argue about yeah. something. Okay. Sorry. Well, I, I have a question for you. So, yeah. if I was going to come out on an uh, an iPad with a a war a war in the East game, I would say. love you forever. I would hit bury your children, which would be difficult okay. because we're both men, but we'll find a way. Yes, well, we do all, it. We all know, <laughs> we we all know though that the the marketing and pricing schemes are very different there. So, what about a game where you basically you buy initially? For a couple of bucks, you buy, you know, a Road to Leningrad scenario or something like that, where maybe a lot of the the uh, features 
aren't even allowed. You know, you can't change your leaders out. You can't uh, I you think, have to use the I, AI support level. You basically, we block a lot of the choices that we give players and, and because they, you know, they don't need to know that initially. Honestly, and, I don't think you're going to be dealing with a game that is going to be burning up the sales charts on the App Store. This is going to be something that appeals to the same niche of players that buy War in the East currently. And I think you're going to have some crossover. I suspect a lot of Warden East players are players who are technologically adept, who like gadgets, and who have an iPad you know, in the other room and would be very interested in something like that. However, I think trying to price it based on the rest of the iPhone app market may not be the wisest of choices for what you're trying to do. I think if you introduced a hardcore uh, war strategy game uh, like War in the East on the iPad for 80 bucks or whatever – I think you would get quite a few people who would uh, buy it. You'd get a lot of screaming. No one charges $80 for an iPhone app. How can you do this? But at the same time, you'd be a you know, this the market of people that you're dealing with, I think would appreciate the value in the product you're getting because right now there is really nothing on the iPhone, you know, the iPad market that does that and takes advantage of the uh, iPad uh, UI in such a way. Yeah, well, the the UI is actually kind of a shortcoming of the game, I think. So I think you'd, in order to take advantage of the of the iPad UI, you'd really have to kind of redesign the whole game. Well, but, sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I assume he's not just talking about a direct port. Yeah. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, that that kind of I don't know what it would take to actually change the interface in a way to get it to. You know, well, you'd have to recode it in Objective C anyway. I mean, you it's not you know it's, there's going to be some development work, obviously. Right. Yeah, this has only come up because I, I I happen to know somebody who's who works on the on the iPad, works on the Apple, and is interested in is a war gamer. I, and I have I I fill a lot of those uh, niches as well, and I've done some iPhone work. And uh, yes, it would be very interesting, but it's very different. You know, just the development itself is very different from a uh, PC game development. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a major job to to take something like War in the East and move it over. Yeah, it's not. you're not going to just be able to hit a compiler switch and say, put it on the iPad, obviously. I mean, it's going to have to be something that I think would be developed from scratch. That being said, I think you could... It should probably, be done. Yes, you could write it your own be. ticket. You really could. Because... Ticket to what? Know, my 80 bucks? I don't know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I, think I, should, I should probably know that there are a lot of iPads in Matrix games. Is well, that right? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I there's a whole bunch of stuff about this game that I, I, I wish we talked about. Maybe we can talk about it some other time. But um, uh, the interface. I, I, Do you want to talk about the interface for a bit? Um. Well, no, because it's just going to sound negative, and I really, I mean, I, okay. I, I really appreciate. So, 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 say what you like about the game, Bruce. Well, I like that it's got stuff and things, and you like hat <laughs> guys. And well. Stuff, you know? I mean, Games it's just, with stuff. <laughs> I mean, it's but what's what really it's really what it is, right? That's what the whole point of this is is stuff, right? Yeah. That's well, why. it's detail. It's historically yes, accurate stuff. detail stuff. It's historically detailed stuff. detail. <laughs> I, I, I personally, I wouldn't mind hearing a, a couple of comments about the interface if you have specific suggestions on what you think would be done. You know, would be better if it was done um, differently and how. Well, I linked. I linked uh, last week, and I think Scott linked today to a post on uh, tealeaves.org, posted by a man named Peter Berger, who wrote this really great post about war game UIs in general, uh, bringing operational art of war and war in the east and a bunch of other UIs, and how war game UIs uh, never have the most important information in the right place. How every icon is the same; they don't prioritize properly. Um, so I highly recommend you check that post out. Peter did yeah, a great a, job that on it. That was a good article. Yeah. I can send yeah. that link to you, Joel. Okay, thanks. It will be linked for if you have if you don't read my blog or Scott's, I will certainly link uh, Peter's post again because it really I think crystallized a lot of things I've been trying to verbalize, um, but Peter did a great job of it. Um, and it really I think I think it every almost every war game falls under these problems and the more stuff you throw into a game the bigger the problems become because the ui can't keep up with the stuff i know peter used a couple of games that were older games in his example and i just want to say that uh, you know what he mentions is definitely recognized and one of the things we've been trying to do from the product development side is to mm-hmm. help steer things towards 
solving a lot of the problems that he mentions. So I think, I think, I think Warren over East, the course of time, yeah. we'll get there. Yeah. I think Warren East uh, went some of the way there. I don't think it's there a lot. I mean, I think... And Joel, feel free to correct me, but I, I get very much get strong impression that War and East is aimed at people who play war games, people who are familiar with war games, people who are familiar with the assumptions of war games, you know, that fundamentally understand what goes into playing a war game. There's not a lot of accessibility at that level, you know. Once you get to that point, I mean, for someone who's already played, uh, you know, a lot of computer war games, it is fairly accessible given that. Mm-hmm. But there's still there's still a ways to go, I think. Well, the target audience definitely also defines some of the development choices. I mean, sort of taking a game like War in the East and using that as an introduction yeah. to war gaming. Well, that's one of the things that, that kind of Peter goes into in his essay, though, is part of the problem is that war game interfaces don't get better because they keep targeting the same people. Yeah, but I mean, you take something like Battlefield Academy or something, which is a, a definite effort to target people yep. outside the normal wargaming, and I, and I think that also shows how wargame UI can be more accessible. Um, right. But I think even on the operational and, and strategy game sides, uh, games like War in the East or um, you know Decisive Campaigns, World War II, right. that we just released this year, I think we've been making progress um, compared to if you take the, the previous iterations of those types of games and... and yeah. Look where it came from. Okay. So, uh, any final positive thoughts or negative thoughts? Um, I'm having a lot of fun uh, with War in the East. I'll say I can't say that I figured it out. Um, I have a, I have to get my review finished this week, um, and it's certainly going to be a nice challenge over the next few days to get that damn thing written because there is one of the problems with detail and I love I love detail in my games I like when it comes to between truth and accuracy I'll take truth over accuracy and there's a, there is a, there's a difference and I've gone into that before uh, and there's just so much detail that it's um it's fun to play with it's um, definitely it's definitely a fun war in the east simulator yeah if you call to call it a simulator it it, it it's something I think that'll be. That, 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 I think that's going to be my headline. This is I'm not. Sh- I'm not sure you can call it a game because it it definitely is not very compromising. It's a it's a fun simulator. Is it a fun game? Yeah. It's funny because you know you get the argument on the on the site uh, on the on the forum at, at Matrix about how you know it's a simulation, darn it, and you know that's what it is. It's not a game. It's got to simulate exactly. You know, and and we look at it as no, I look at it as it's a game. I mean, come on! It's a game. Yeah. Now, it's it's, it's close mean, once, to a simulator, but once you introduce rules, it's a game. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's what it comes down. Yeah. Rules and probabilities, but uh, it's it, it, it's quite an achievement by two by three, and I'm certainly looking. For, and if you uh, are interested in uh, War in the East, you can either wait for my review when it comes out in print in three months' time. Or you can check out a lot of the other comments online and go to Matrix Forum and see what uh, their audience thinks about it, or the Wargamer Forum, which is affiliated with Matrix, and see what they think about it. Or uh, there's even a there's a Grunyard post, a Grunyard thread on Quarter to Three, and there are some people weighing in on War in the East there as well, and a bunch of other games. And I think I posted a couple screenshots of my first attempt did. at the campaign scenario. It's like, okay, I've spent four hours. Here is a third of turn one. Go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds and, a lot like my first turn one, too. I just sort of started from the top left and worked my way down. That's exactly and, what I did, too. All right, wow. I've gotten to Brest Litovsk. Yay! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and that is why, that is why I invited Scott. That is why I invited Scott in the show, because his post was so enlightening. Well, and just so you know, we are continuing to work on a lot of new shorter scenarios, so. You right. don't have to play the grand campaign, and some of the shorter know, scenarios can, are pretty interesting. If you buy a game like this, I'd say you and you're the target market for a game like this. Yes, you have to play the grand campaign. Oh, eventually you have to. Yeah, this is why you have to eventually. Come on. But yeah. you, I definitely agree with Joel. You ought to start with the tutorial, yeah. then Road to Minsk, Road to Leningrad, do the other Road to scenarios, and then yeah. jump in. Yeah, I mean, it definitely I, sounds like Road to Leningrad would be a good I, choice. Uh, I play. I, I played the. I played the campaign several times in development over the last couple of years. It's changed a lot, but you know, I, I played it. But you know, over the the break, I had a you know a couple of days where I knew I'd have a few hours. I sat down, I played a game of Road to Leningrad, because I just enjoy playing the smaller scenarios myself. 
because I know I can finish it. I can play it in an evening or a couple of days. Right. Um, any further comments, questions, queries, complaints? I have none. You have none. <laughs> <laughs> I want to thank uh, Eric and Joel for being here tonight. Thanks, guys, for having thank us. You. Thank you very much for, for giving more and these some attention. Yep. And fun. Scott for sitting in. Thank you. Rock and roll, Scott. Next week is episode 100. Uh, 100 episodes of Three Moves Ahead. Next week, somebody dies. Tune in to find out who it is. Who's going to die? That's a good voice. You should go with that. That's actually my real voice. <laughs> I just use this voice for radio. <laughs> Do you have that report ready for me? <laughs> Say goodnight, everyone. Goodnight, everyone. Goodnight. Goodnight. Bye.